Um, well, if you're here for the first time um, uh, this morning, um, we've been... Uh, We've been looking through chapters 12 to 25 of the book of Genesis, which are all about uh, living by faith in the promises of God. If you've been here for this series, you'll, you'll know that by now. Um, they're, they're chapters that are concerned with the life of Abraham, uh, of course, who, who is a man to whom God has made promises. Back in chapter 12, uh, promises of land and promises of people, and promises of blessing. And he's made these promises to Abraham as part of his unfolding plan for the whole world. Um, uh, The plan that that actually the rest of the the Bible is the the story of, the plan that the rest of the Bible unpacks. Um, So, so for example, if you were to go back right to the beginning of the Bible, the first couple of chapters uh, of the Bible, in in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, you you would find described there the world as God designed it to be. God's first people, Adam and Eve, um, were living in God's land, the Garden of Eden. They were under his rule, and so they were enjoying his blessing. Um, But that doesn't last long, of course, does it? Because by the time chapter 3 turns up, we find Adam and Eve rebelling against God. They don't want to go God's way. They want to go their own way um, instead. In other words, in their rebellion, they refuse God's rule. And so they forfeit God's blessing, and they're banished from his land as no longer his people. Um, And and then we see it spread uh, through chapters 4 to 11 uh, of Genesis, the the spread uh, of that rebellion, that that sin, such that not just Adam and Eve, but actually everyone who follows does exactly the same thing. But we see that God, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy for rebellious, sinful humanity, is actually determined to do something. Do something to bring God's people back to his land, back under his rule, enjoying his blessing. In other words, he's going to restore what our sin has messed up. And so God calls Abraham in, in chapter 12 and he makes him certain unconditional promises. Uh, promises that through him and through his descendants, God will build a new people and he'll lead them to a new land and he'll bring them back under his rule so that they can enjoy his blessing again. Promises which the rest of the Bible unpacks and shows are not simply about their, their partial fulfillment in building the people of Israel and bringing them to the land of Canaan. No, that's way bigger, way more global than that. Because these, as we see in the Bible, are gospel promises that find their full and their final fulfillment. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where we find God's new people, his church from Jew and Gentile, in his new land his new creation, heaven, under his rule and his blessing for eternity. Plans that God is going to bring about through the descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, and the rescue that he's going to come to bring. And and as we've gone through the story of Abraham so far, what we've seen is that God has been reiterating and expanding on that promise to Abraham hasn't he? And, and, and how Abraham has been called to respond to God's promises by faith. In other words, by trusting what God promises and so obeying what God says. Uh, but of course, while God's promises, we've seen, have been utterly consistent, Abraham's faith in God's promises, a mm, bit up and down, uh, to say the least. Um, uh, Abraham's known in the Bible, isn't he, as, as um, a hero of the faith. The Apostle Paul calls him the man of faith. And sometimes, uh, of course, Abraham's really looked like a man of faith, uh, hasn't he? He he clearly trusted in God's promise and and so obeyed God's call back in chapter 12, didn't he? When God said, go, uh, 
You know, go from your, your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Well, he did that, didn't he? He trusted God's promise and, and so obeyed what God said. Um, he demonstrated trust in God back in chapter 13 when he gave Lot the, the pick of the land to live in. Or in chapter 14 when he went into battle uh, against the four kings and their armies in order to rescue Lot. You know, but, but then at other times his faith has taken a real nosedive, hasn't it? And, and he's looked nothing like um, a, a hero of the faith. For example, no sooner had he arrived in, in the land that God told him to go to in, in chapter 12 than he decides to leave it again because there's a, a famine. And so he goes to Egypt. And no sooner had he arrived there than he's fobbing off his wife as his sister in order to save his own skin. And, and no sooner had he been led to victory over the four kings in chapter 14 than we find him sleeping with another woman in order to try and get his promised son. <laughs> so, so Abram's faith in God and his promises, well, friends, it's been patchy, <laughs> to say the least, hasn't it? And it's happening again here, isn't it? Um, over the last couple of chapters, if you've been here, we've seen Abraham trusting God in the face of God's righteous judgment. Trusting God that although he must and he will judge sin, yet he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That, he, that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Well, Abraham trusts God to do that, doesn't he? And, and so he intercedes for the, the righteous in Sodom. But actually we've also seen in chapter 18, God reiterating his promise to Abraham that, that by this time next year, Sarah will give birth to a son. So, so it's brilliant. Isn't it? These, these promises of people and land and, and blessing that just seemed so unlikely because they didn't even have children actually now seem to be not just on track but, but actually kind of tantalizingly close, don't they? But here in chapter 20, just look what happens to Abraham, the man of faith. He makes exactly the same mistake as he did back in chapter 13, doesn't he? And in the process, he threatens to jeopardize the whole plan. So it's kind of four scenes to the passage here, uh, I think. And, and scene one, look, in uh, verses one and two, uh, I, I think is a, is a scene of sin. Have a look at verses uh, one and two with me. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in and he sojourned in Gerar. So, um, unlike Lot, you know, Lot settled in the in the cities, didn't he? Abraham is still leading a, a, a sort of nomadic existence, and in verse one, look, he, he leaves his pitch where he was by the the oaks of Mamre, if you remember, uh, and, and he goes a, he goes on a bit of a road trip. So he heads south into the region of the Negeb. He, he ends up in Gerar, um, and, and as any as any student backpacker knows, you know, a, a nomadic existence of kind of travelling through other people's countries, it's not without its risks, uh, is it? And, and it was the same in Abraham's day, particularly if you were traveling with a woman. Because the, the, the kings in those days, they, they tended to be polygamous, so they had, they had many wives. But they weren't generally adulterers. So, so if they saw a woman that they considered desirable, but happened to have a husband, well, the solution was kind of to bump off the husband in order to marry the woman. Um, so it, it seems that Abraham and Sarah had they kind of devised a bit of a plan to, to deal with this when it, when it happened, which was to pretend that they were brother and sister instead of husband and wife, thus not risking Abraham getting bumped off. 
And, and you can see, look, from verse 13, if you scan ahead to verse 13, that this seems to have been agree- an agreement that they've had in place kind of right from the start of their nomadic existence. Verse 13, this is the kindness you must do to me, says Abraham to Sarah, and every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. But of course, it's, it's, it's perhaps a bit surprising to find out that they're doing that here. Because we know that he did it before. He did it back in chapter 12 in Egypt, didn't he? And it had disastrous consequences. Do you remember? Uh, Abraham and Sarah had had gone down to Egypt to escape the the famine. uh, And as they were crossing the border into Egypt, Abraham says to Sarah to kind of try and preserve his his own skin, uh, that because she's so beautiful, if anyone asks, uh, she should just say that Abraham is her sister, uh, uh, that, that she's Abraham's sister. And, of course, people do notice her beauty. It gets reported back to Pharaoh, the king, who takes her as his wife. And it results in God afflicting the king's household with with disease. So there's a disastrous policy here, isn't there? It was disastrous the first time uh, that they tried it. But so fearful is he here, look in verse 2, that he's doing the same thing all over again. And it just seems like a disaster waiting to happen, doesn't it? You know, and another disaster to scupper God's plan. Because remember, God has promised a son through Sarah, but a son for Abraham, not, not a son for Abimelech. So how is that going to happen now? He's, he's really messed up again, hasn't he? He should have known better what's happened to his trust in, in God's sovereignty and God's care. What's happened to him trusting in God's promise and so obeying what God says? It's all gone out the window, hasn't it? He's messed up, good and proper. Well, friends, um, I don't know about you, um, but messing up again is not just the story of Abraham's life. It's the story of my life as well. I've been a Christian for more than 40 years. But like Abraham here, I still find some of the same old sins raising their ugly heads again. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And when it comes to trusting God's promises and so obeying what God says, well, it's not just Abraham who finds himself failing to do that, is it? In, in the tough realities of life. We, we all do that, don't we? And, and our problem, just, just like his... It's not so much that we stop believing in God's promises, in, you know, in his sovereignty or, or in his grace, his care for us. It's just that we fail to practically apply the promises of God to the tough realities of our life, isn't it? In other words, yes, we know that God promises us this and, and that and the other. And, and some, of us, some of us can even quote the Bible verses to, to, to back it all up. We, we believe it, in, in our heads at least. We, we even affirm it confidently in our, in our teaching and in our, in our singing on a Sunday. We nod our heads in agreement when we, we gather in church together. But then on a Monday, you know, when the tough realities of life start to kick in, don't we find so often that we think it's just too costly to be faithful to God, um, or it's too hard to be obedient. And so, so we end up kind of bending our obedience a bit just in order to fit in. Um, we, we kind of justify it by, by saying things to ourselves like, Lord, you know, you know I trust you, but I just want to make sure that things work out okay. You know, we're just like Abraham, aren't we? All of which 
makes this rather unflattering portrait of Abraham here, I, I think really rather comforting, actually, doesn't it? Because even a man known as a, a hero of the faith, like Abraham, turns out to be not much of a hero at all. Meaning that if God's plan to put right what our sin has messed up and bring salvation to the world is ever going to be brought to fulfillment, it's going to be all down to God. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. In fact, it's exactly what we see in in all Bible narrative. We see that God is the hero, not us. And we see that that fundamentally, the, the unfolding story of the Bible is the story of what God is doing, not what people are doing. He's the hero. It, it's him, not us, who makes, this, uh, who makes his plan for the world happen. And friends, I, I think that's a vital lesson for us to know and be reminded of, isn't it? So, so often when we look at our own lives, we, we look at our own world, um, we, we will not be viewing them or, or living them as though God wasn't involved in them. But we will see our, our lives. We will see them as lives and events through which God himself is bringing about his plans and, and purposes for the world. That the unfolding plan of God that started with these promises to Abraham, that the plan that our lives and our world today is still a part of, well, that's always been kept on track by God and, and not people. So so who's the hero? Clearly it's not Abraham, is it? Because he's just messed up again, just like we do. The hero of the story here, as always, is God. And and you can see that in the first two words of verse 3, can't you? But God. In other words, Abraham did something stupid again that threatened God's plans. But God. I think they're really comforting words, aren't they? We mess up, but God. So what does God do? I I think that's scene two. Look in verses three to seven, which is a scene of intervention. Have have a look at at verse three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, God's reaction here might feel like a bit of a shock to us. He's basically telling Abimelech in, in this dream that he's as good as dead because he's taken, uh, he's taken as his wife uh, an already married woman. And, and you know, in, in our culture where uh, I guess where divorce is quite common where, uh, uh, and increasingly easy to do, we might find that a bit harsh. But, you know, in, in the ancient world, um, actually God's view of marriage that we see in the Bible as, as sacred Actually, that was, that was widely accepted in the, in the prevailing culture of the time as well. So, so, so it, it was accepted in, in most cultures that adultery merited the death penalty. So notice Abimelech, he doesn't question God's fairness in saying you're as good as dead for, for what you've done. He knows that's right. And, and notice that he also expects that as a king, verse 4, uh, this will bring judgment on his people. As well, So, so the, the high view of marriage that, that God has, the, and so therefore the seriousness of adultery, was, was also the, the cultural norm of the time. So it's never really in question here, even from Abimelech, who is a pagan king. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Quite a contrast with our own culture, as recent events in the news have shown us. Um, 
But although Abimelech doesn't question the fairness of God's judgment, he certainly does protest his ignorance, doesn't he? And and, and quite rightly, have a look at uh, verse 5. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? As she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And, And he's right, isn't he? He's been duped, and he's been duped by both of them. Abraham said to him, she's my sister, and Sarah said to him, he's my brother. They've both deceived him. And and God knows this, verse 6, which is why he stepped in, in in some way, to prevent Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah and so defiling her marriage to Abraham, which is what verse 4 means by saying Abimelech had not approached her. He'd not slept with her yet. So so not only has God intervened to warn Abimelech of what he'd inadvertently done, but God has already intervened to make sure that Abimelech didn't unintentionally sin with Sarah. And and you know, friends, it made me think, um, we often grieve, don't we, the amount of sin that we see in the world as as Christians. We, We often grieve that and the untold suffering that that sin brings. And people often raise the issue of why doesn't God bring an end to all the suffering and and the sin. Of course, the Bible says that he will, that he will one day judge the world for its sin. We saw that very clearly last week, didn't we, in chapter 19. And and the Bible also explains why he's not done it yet. And it's because he's patient. It's because he wants more people to come to him in, in repentance and trust before that day of judgment arrives. But, you know, the striking thought that this verse causes us to ponder on, I think, is how much of the sin that people plan, God actually does prevent. You know, maybe by pricking our conscience uh, or, or making us afraid of getting caught or making it difficult for us to implement our sinful plans. And that's what we see here, isn't it? And it's what God often does. He intervenes in our world to prevent sin from taking place. And friends, however bad our world is, it would be a far worse place, wouldn't it? If all the sin that is in our hearts were simply allowed by God to be acted upon. I think that if we could see how much sin God intervenes to prevent, it would surprise us how often he does step in. And he steps in here. And we get a hint as as to why, don't we? Look in in verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Do you see, God is specifically intervening in, in this uh, uh, instance to, um, uh, because of who Abraham is. Because he's a prophet. In other words, he's someone who has received God's revelation in order to be God's mouthpiece, to speak his word. And not only is he a prophet, but he's God's intercessor. Verse 7, he's someone who can pray for Abimelech that he may live. Because God acts in response to Abraham's prayer, something that we saw last week in the case of Lot. And so uh, Abimelech's only hope is in returning Sarah to him. Uh, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. 
So Abraham messes up, which threatens to jeopardize God's plans, but God intervenes. And and notice also, look, in in verses 8 to 13, there's not only a scene of intervention, but there's a scene of confrontation. Did you notice that? And it's a scene of confrontation because actually Abimelech, the pagan king, has acted more righteously than the so-called righteous Abraham. Hasn't he? Have a look at at, uh, at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. So having been told in a dream of what he's inadvertently done, Abimelech wastes no time in putting it right. He's, He's anxious to be obedient, isn't he? He rises early, he briefs his staff, and and then he goes and confronts Abraham. Look, in verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. (laughs) It's a bit of an ironic statement, really, isn't it? As, As righteous Abraham is given a lecture on personal morality by a pagan king. But he's he's shocked. He's he's indignant, isn't he? What what have you done to us? And and what have I done to you that you should bring this this great sin upon me and my kingdom? You've you've done things to me that should not be done. And and then in verse 10, he he, he asks, "What, what did you see that you did this thing? In other words, what on earth possessed you to do this, Abraham? What was your reason for it? And do you see Abraham's kind of lame excuse in verse 11? I I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. So they will kill me because of my wife. And, And that phrase, no fear of God, it means no reverence for God, no awe of God, no respect for God and and his waves. But actually, Abram's got that hopelessly wrong, hasn't he? Because despite being a a bunch of pagans, (laughs) there certainly is a fear of God. There is a reverential awe and respect for God here, isn't there? Both in Abimelech the king, who's been quick to put right what's gone wrong in obedience to God, and among the royal household as well. Verse 8, it's a lame excuse from Abraham. No, the truth, of course, is that it's Abraham who's been demonstrating a momentary lack of reverential awe and respect for God, isn't it? And and you can see that by the fact that he's deceived the king. Uh, Verse 12, uh, besides, she is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not not my mother. And she became my wife. In other words, technically, Abimelech, she she is my sister. You see, he's trying to get off on a technicality, isn't he? (laughs) When the truth is that he's deceived the king. And what's more, he's pulled his wife into his web of deceit as well. Verse 13, for ever since we've been traveling, we've had this little agreement to deceive the people that we meet. <laughs> and, and Sarah's been dragged into it and told to say, yeah, he's, he's my brother. Do you see, this, this um, kind of let's pretend to be brother and sister thing, it's just been a regular part of their married life. And why... Well, because it's an area in which Abraham feared men more than he feared God. And it's an area where his fear of what people might do to him 
has caused him to abandon trust in God to keep him safe. See, God had promised Abraham and Sarah that by this time next year they would have a son. So there was no way that God was going to let anything happen to them, was there? So so why on earth did Abraham go ahead with this whole deception thing all over again? When by doing so, he was putting at risk the very thing that God had promised. Why did he do that? Well, it's because he doubted that God would do what he promised. He failed to trust God, and so he took matters into his own hands. And in doing so, he put his wife at risk. He put the king and the people at risk. He threatened to jeopardize the very promise that God had made. He doubted God's power to do what he said. And did you notice as well, look, in verse 13, there's just a hint of him doubting God's goodness as well, isn't there? Did you spot that? And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Do you see? There's just a little bit of blame shifting going on there, isn't there? Well, it's God who caused me to go on all these travels in the first place. So, so I had to invent this, this little deception. It's like, well, well, you got me into this mess, God. You know, don't blame me for having to do something to get out of it. Do you see, he's, he's in the mess because he's failed to trust God. He's doubted God's power. He's doubted God's goodness. He's taken matters into his own hands and he's dragged others down with him and he's put them in danger and he's put the fulfillment of God's promise in jeopardy. And not only that, but it's affected his witness as one of God's people as well, hasn't he? Because here he is being ticked off by a pagan king for his sinful actions. I think these are sobering verses really, aren't they? As God through Abimelech, a pagan king, confronts Abraham with his sin. And and friends, it, it raises the issue, doesn't it, of the serious impact of our sin. Abraham's failure to trust God had awful consequences to it, didn't it? And I think that should cause us not to underestimate the seriousness of sin. Because, friends, often we do underestimate the seriousness of sin, don't we? And it often causes us to kind of cuddle our sin when we should be putting it to death, don't you think? We we, we can justify it, can't we? We can excuse it away because we've just become too attached to it to to want to get rid of it. And and, and what we see here is, is God confronting Abraham with his sin and showing him just how terrible the effects of sin are. And so, friends, you know, for us as as people of faith today, well, we should learn the lesson from the man of faith here, shouldn't we? And and just have a passion to fight sin in our lives, not cuddle up to the sin in our lives. So we've had scenes of sin and intervention and confrontation But look, I want us to see lastly, most importantly, this final scene of grace in verses 14 to 18. Because in the the face of Abraham's sin, God has intervened in order to keep his plan on track. He's confronted Abraham with his sin and its devastating effects. And now what does he do? Well, he pours out his grace. Look at 
Have a look at, uh, at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Isn't that amazing? So, so not only is his wife given back to Abraham, but he's given cattle and servants and land so that he's no longer an alien, as well as a shed load of money. You know, you, you paid for a bride in, in the ancient world, a bride price. The most you could pay was 50 pieces of silver. But here Abraham is given a 1,000 pieces of silver, more than a lifetime's wages. It's an extraordinary amount of money. The God who used Abimelech to confront Abraham with his sin now uses Abimelech to be a means of grace to him. It's amazing, isn't it? Abraham stuffs up big time and and sins his way into a total mess. But what does God do? Well, God intervenes to keep his plan of salvation on track and then he lovingly confronts Abraham with his sin before then pouring out his grace and his mercy and his blessing on him. And friends, praise God that this is what he's like. Praise God he's not like us. Because, you know, if if, if God was anything like me, he he would have got totally fed up with Abraham's inconsistent faith and, and constant failure. But praise God he's not like me. For even though Abraham has been massively inconsistent, yet God has been totally consistent, hasn't he? He's he's done what he does. He's given sinful people what they don't deserve. And that is such good news for you and me, isn't it? Because we're no different. We're no different from Abraham, are we? But friends, when our sin is exposed... And when we throw ourselves on God's grace and mercy, he delights to pour out his grace on us. That's what he does. And and do you see where that grace is pointing us? See, I, I think we're supposed to register here that this land that Abimelech is giving Abraham free reign over is part of the land that God promised to him back in chapter 12. In other words, the fulfillment of that promise has just moved one stage closer, hasn't it? God's plan hasn't been thwarted by Abraham's sin, but in fact, God is moving it forward. And he's not moving it forward in spite of the mess that Abraham's made, but actually through it, which is brilliant news, isn't it? Because it tells us that when we mess up like Abraham... That our sin doesn't stop God from bothering with us and it doesn't stop his plans and purposes from moving forward. Do you see, not not only are his plans not thwarted by our mess-ups, but he actually advances his plans through our mess-ups. And of course, as we've seen from chapter 12, God's plans and and purposes are gospel plans and purposes. They're, They're purposes to bring blessing through Christ, the descendant of Abraham, to the whole world, aren't they? So one thing we see here is God's grace to those who are his, even though we mess up. And that's such good news. 
But friends, what we also see here is God's concern for those who are not yet his. Uh, Have a look at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So not only does God give to his people what they don't deserve, but he also wants to bring blessing to others through his people. So again, if you remember God's promise to Abraham back in chapter 12, it was a promise of blessing through him, wasn't it? Chapter 12, verse 3, do you remember? I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now here in verse 7, God says to Abimelech, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. In other words, Abimelech, your future lies in this guy's prayers. So you'd better return his wife. Because whether you get my blessing or my curse depends on your response to this man, Abimelech. And then what happens here in verse 17, well, Abraham prays for Abimelech and restoration comes to the household. Do you see? And the point, of course, is that Abimelech now knows that it's Abraham who makes the difference, that God's blessing comes through him. And of course, as this theme of blessing through the line of Abraham gets further unpacked, and we see it further unpacked in the New Testament, so we see that what's happening here in Genesis is pointing us forward to Christ, isn't it? So God says to Abimelech, whether you get my blessing or my curse depends on your response to this man, Abraham. And God says to us today, whether you get my blessing or my curse depends on your response to the man that Abraham is pointing to, the man Jesus, the man who came to take the curse that your sin deserves on himself on the cross so that you can be forgiven and made righteous and know his blessing instead of his curse as you trust in his son to save you. So friend, if you're not yet a Christian this morning, my prayer is that you would see what God is showing Abimelech here. That blessing for the world and for you comes through the promise of God to Abraham that finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So how you respond to him, to Christ, is of vital importance. And friends, for those of us who are already Christians this morning, well, passages like this are here to encourage us to keep trusting in the promises and trusting in the goodness of God so that we will go his way and not our way. Because we see here the devastating effects of failing to do that. But also this passage is here to show us the incredible grace of God, whose saving plans and purposes for the world are not thwarted by our sin, and who when we mess up, when we fail to trust him and and are confronted with our sin, doesn't give up on us. But he delights to give us what we don't deserve. He pours out his grace and his blessing on us. Isn't that amazing?
Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Father, as we, see, uh, as we see our character displayed here, um, either in the character of Abraham or, or perhaps the character of Abimelech, so we thank you that you are the hero and not us. Um, thank you that the unfolding story of the Bible is the story of what you are doing, not us. Um, and so we, we thank you that, that you are the God who intervenes in our world and whose plan is to put right what our sin has messed up and, and that that's not thwarted by our sin and our failure to trust you. Thank you that you are the God who confronts us with our sin and I pray that you would do that this morning. If we are nursing sin when we should be battling sin in our lives or if we've not yet trusted in your son to deal with our sin, Father, thank you that you are the God of grace. You're the God who delights to bring blessing to those who trust you, despite our many failings. And you're a God who seeks to bless others as they turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. So, Father, please help your word to take root in our lives and cause us to respond to you rightly. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.